to Nerds of the Roundtable, a podcast on a quest for quality pop culture. I'm Jamie. And I'm Dwayne. And I'm Sammy. And on this episode, we're going to be reviewing a Halloween special. Woohoo! 1996's <laughs> Scream. Yes. Directed yeah. by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, and starring a whole bunch of people that, you know, went on to make Scooby Doo and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think between Friends and Scooby Doo, this was like about all the work the cast got. <laughs> <laughs> and in 1996, I thought I'd seen, like, I thought I was watching, like, the future of Hollywood. Like, all oh, these are going to be the biggest stars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, well,. We all know what happened. <laughs> well, they were all hot names for about a hot minute. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think we should uh, take a, a hot minute and a half and talk about something, guys. It's time to keep it 100. 100. 100. 100. So actually, it's about a hot minute and 10 seconds. So let's take <laughs> or keep it 100. So I'm leading off uh, with this week's Keeping It 100. Um, so I'll take 100 seconds to tell you guys about National Treasure. 2004's Nicolas Cage, Sean Bean, and he doesn't die. Harvey Keitel is an FBI agent. Um, you know, I, I haven't really gotten to watch a lot of movies this week. Uh, it's been kind of hectic, kind of crazy. But this movie is just one of those ones that takes history takes like all these old conspiracy theories and myths and makes them so much fun and puts them in a little chase sequence uh, and just is a fun romp and a great adventure throughout. Uh, This is one of the times that Disney has succeeded at live action. So 2004 is National Treasure starring Nicolas Cage. Cool. And it's a fun movie. Oh, it's a ton of fun. Um, and this, you know, like Scream, this is one of those movies that kind of changed some of those, you know, like chase heist movies. Uh, it, it sort of changed this genre a little bit. And the subsequent movies didn't come near of what the original was. Yeah. they. It, it, it's almost like <laughs> they, they tried to guy up Tomb Raider, you know. <laughs> right. But they managed to keep Nicolas Cage mostly under control for about 90 minutes of a movie. So that's yeah. quite an accomplishment just in he's, itself. He's, he's quite subdued performing in this one. Yeah. He, he, he held the crazy eyes back. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Sammy, you're up next. All right. Uh, so let's start that clock. So, you know, every once in a while, I revisit maybe an old comic book storyline that somebody mentions that I haven't seen in a while. So Jamie will appreciate this because on a recent episode of Rob Servations, Rob Liefeld discussed his six-issue run on the 1996 Heroes Are Born Captain America. And I hadn't read that in a while. So I thought, you know what? Let's check it out. Now, whether you're a fan of Liefeld's art, uh, insert feed or pouches joke here, uh, or not, the story is really good. Uh, Liefeld and 
Jeff Loeb scripting, as as Rob will tell you, just scripting, uh, really captures the patriotic nature of the character as he faces off against the Red Skull and Masterman. Uh, it's really a fun read, and it's a very different version of Steve in this pocket universe. Uh, so it's definitely it's definitely worth my time. I would definitely check it out if you haven't read that in a while. It holds up better than you would think. Uh, and that's why the first six issues of Heroes Are Born, Captain America, is my keeping at 100. <laughs> I literally just finished issue four of that run. It's good. It really is. You know, I mean, some of the, some of the art is definitely his 90s art. You, you can see a growth in, in his art style, but, you know. And it's not you know, it's not Brubaker, but it's it's a fun plot. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've read a lot worse Captain America stories. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, oh, let me get my timer pulled up. Okay, here we go. Um, okay, so um, okay, I'm it's about to be a little bit of a bummer. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I, <laughs> so I was I was I was 20 years old when 9/11 happened, and I was sort of in the middle of a um, a spiritual conversion type situation. And I was at a real sort of, I mean, I was, I mean, 20, I mean, what do we know about the world? I mean, <laughs> and so 9 11 happens. And um, I, you know, it was a real sort of world shaking event for me. And so a few, right around 9 11, the, I don't know why, but this year the anniversary hit me harder than it has um, recently. I'm not sure if it's my kids, you know, age of my kids now, conversations, questions they're asking now about it each year are getting more thoughtful. Um, their questions are getting deeper. And so uh, a podcast popped up called Blind Spot, The Road to 9-11. And mm-hmm. I started listening to it. And it's an audio companion to a History Channel uh, documentary. And uh, it's really well done. It's incredibly researched. And the whole thing is like going through history from like, I guess like late 80s up through the, like the moments before 9-11. And sort of really digging deep into, like, all the things we could have seen, um, what we could have done differently. Um, all the times, like, the people who, who actually did 9-11 were on our radar and could have been apprehended and weren't. And all this, it's just, it's incredibly deeply researched. Um, the, and the narrator, the guy, the reporter, he's a, he's a former New York, New York Times reporter who did all the research. He was there when it happened. Like, he was standing, like, looking at the towers when the second flame hit. I mean, he had people inside that he knew. And so it and it just finished. And so it's an eight, it's a eight it's an eight episode limited series, and it's I mean it's enthralling and it's 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 a powerful series. So Blind Spot: The Road to 9-11. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it just it was it was a weird scenario. Like I was sort of feeling it really hard <laughs> this year, and then that mm-hmm. pops up like podcast you might like, and it just mm-hmm. it knocked my socks off. Wow. Well, that's some pretty heavy. Stuff, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, (laughs) on that note, guys, uh, I think we have some opening thoughts and grades to get into. Sam, you're up first, brother. All right, you know, it's never great batting lead off with opening thoughts and grades sometimes. You know, when Screamers released, I was really right in the middle of that that demographic you know and i think jamie mentioned this with himself um 
when we were previewing it in the last episode. You know, I was there opening weekend. I was I loved scary movies, and I remember really liking this movie. Um, you know, and I think in retrospect, it's definitely one of those movies. It reflects its decade. You know, we talked about in our episode about a movie that reflects its decade. This definitely does. There's so many lines of dialogue and in jokes that would probably be lost on someone watching this movie post New Millennium deal. Um, you know, Kevin Williamson's script was not Dawson's Creek because that's the only way we had really known him to this point. Um, you know, was kind of doing teen stuff like that. So I like the fact that it plays with the history and the tropes of scary movies. And it becomes very meta in some places. And I think that is kind of interesting. Um, for the most part, it's a wild romp. It's got its jump scares. It's got its gore. But I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to have to – we're going to go into this. I just don't think all of the elements hold up for me as well. Um, and there's specific reasons. So, grade, I'm going to go solid B. Um, like I said, it's, it's just – it's a good solid movie, but – Adult me sees things with different eyes than 20-something did. So. <laughs> All right, well, I'm up next. Um, and I'm, I'm not – I can't pretend. I'm not – I'm grading on a curve. <laughs> I, I, I was a 15-year-old dude bro when this movie came out. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was the individual target, target demographic for this movie. It, it landed perfectly. Um, I thought the dudes were the coolest dudes ever. Um, I, I thought the, the, the girls were like the hottest chicks ever. I mean, this was, I mean, I thought it was the, the smartest, cleverest movie, you know, it was so like, you know, and, and at that point I was a big fan of horror movies. Um, I grew that quickly. Um, but I was like deep into all, like all the references, all the stuff. I, I, I and it was, just really hit me playing with all the tropes. The rules, all that stuff. I was, I was into it, you know, and it made me like look at them. Okay, what are they playing with? Like, what convention are they trying to do with this scene? Like, what, what is this supposed to call back to? It was really interesting, um, and it was by like, I mean, Wes Craven was probably my favorite horror director, um, and so it was sort of him getting to come back. Was, I mean, so I'm going to give it an A minus. Um, I think for what it was and what it was trying to do, it works really well. Um, it was, and it was the first to really be meta about the genre and to play with the tropes and conventions. But I, I'm fairly certain if you didn't see this when it first came out, um, no one will have the reaction to it the way we did at the time. Because what they did in this movie that was original is the furthest thing from original now. Yeah. All the things they did that were clever here have been done to death. So if you didn't see this movie in the 90s, there's no way this feels special and, and not just run of the mill. So yeah, it's on a curve, but it's an A minus for me. Okay. Okay. Well, I know Sammy talked about how tough it was going first. I'm going to talk about how tough it is going last because you guys took all of my notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to hedge it. This movie is a solid B. It's not perfect. It's not great. It's not horrible. It's a solid B movie F for me. It's, it's, it's well above average, but it doesn't stick the landing that it's trying to stick. But, you know, this movie did capture an era so well. An era in cinema, an era in pop culture. You know, these were the coolest guys. These were the hottest chicks of that time. You know, you have the video store culture. You have... <laughs> 
the you know it's right at the end of you know parents leaving the kids home uh, you know and going on the trips and things and so you have the parties or the danger for the teenagers uh, you know you have all of that stuff but you know this movie has became at, at, at subsequent re- rewatches a victim of its own tropes you know, uh, it's it, it was so acknowledging of what the genre was. Uh, you know, and Jamie talked about the roles, the different things it lays out. You know, but then we have, you know, all of the sequels and all of the I know what you did last summers and us, you know, and I, I, us, you know, the grudge, final destination, final destination. It yeah. has all of those things that that have taken off, and and then you have you know not only that but the scary movies. You know that yep. you just take this and, you know, and I was telling I was telling my daughter about this and she's like, "Is that? Is, that's the one with the mask, isn't it?" She said, "Yeah." She said, "Scary movie?" I said, "No, Scream." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and that's what, what a younger generation's view of this is. You know, it's it's kind of the movie that that, that and, and it was so impactful that it you know it, it kind of fell victim to its own tropes, but yeah, solid B. You know, on a side note, they're they're remaking. I know what you did last summer. So <laughs> there's a remake in, in the in the works in 2025 or whenever movies come out again. Um, I will make well, somehow, a statement to the people who are making. I know what you did, who are remaking. I know what you did last summer, and I will also make this statement to Disney. Some things should not be remade. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Speaking of that, I didn't know they had made a Scream TV series until I was doing the Keanu connection for this thing. Yes. I, I've not why? watched it, but it, yes. Why did yeah. that happen? <laughs> I, missed, I must have missed that one. I'm guessing that's a good thing. Yeah, it didn't look promising. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, guys, it sounds like we're all a fan of this movie. So why don't we make it official? Graphically novel. Three brothers tackle a different graphic novel each week. Listen as the brothers Fugit discuss classic and not-so-classic graphic novels. Subscribe now on your podcast feed of choice. Graphically Novel, three brothers who like each other but love comics. Uh, I get to go first, and I'm going to be Captain Obvious. I'm not even going to play. I, the, the, the thing is, this movie does best is the way it plays with the conventions of the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. like the scene where, like, you know, the... I don't think they even said their names. One of the girls are watching the movie in uh, Stu's living room. And the girl's like, why are they doing this? And, it, and like Randy flips out, like, you don't know the rules. <laughs> and he starts listing the rules and earlier in the movie. I think in the opening scene with Drew Barrymore, like the guys like giving out some of the rules then, and the way they play with, you know, you know, I just, it's, 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 it's clever in a way that was only clever in 1996. <laughs> it's not anymore. But at the time, it was so different. Like, everything else was, you were really immersed in that one story. You didn't acknowledge that they were in a horror movie. You didn't acknowledge that there were other horror movies. I mean, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street is a great movie. It's not this. Halloween, the Halloween movies are good. They're not this. I mean, they're not doing this knowing meta, you know, conversation with all of the genre the way this movie does. It's the best thing it does well, especially Randy's speech about the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, so the, the meta stuff is my thing for the week. Yeah, cool. Well, you're not wrong. Mine sort of goes uh, right along with that. You know, the, the impact that this movie had on the genre, I guess, is my fan. Uh, it's you know what it what it did. It acknowledged that there was scary movies and that there was a quote unquote formula. 
you know, that they went to, that there were these rules happened on screen every time, you know, and, and uh, I, I love Randy's speech. It's going to come up later, of course, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> what this movie did, you know, it impacted scary movies in such a way that it, it changed, it shifted the genre, really, really did. In some ways good and in some ways bad. But you know, it, it caused a cultural shift to those types of movies. Yeah, and, and you know, and that's the thing, and, and is that you've always got the one that no, comes Sammy first. No, Sammy being grim is the thing. <laughs> uh, but, but it's just that idea of there's always something that's first. And then that first becomes watered down because it gets done and overdone and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think my fan is kind of similar to what both of you guys were talking about. You know, I grew up, you know, very similar to probably most teenagers loving horror movies. I mean, that if my buddy stayed on that, I mean, you talked about the video store. We hit the video store and it was just a stack of, of nothing but sleepaway camp, you know, just any type of slasher gore fest we could find. And I love the fact that Scream gives that nod to a history of horror. You know, so often I think horror movies are just kind of, oh yeah, that's just horror movies. You know, and, and then we hold up, you know, Casablanca and Citizen Kane as these these grand history of movies. But there's a history to horror also. And I love the fact they play with that. Um, you know, tying in Michael Myers, Jason, uh, Jason Voorhees, or his mother in the first one, obviously. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's all those little things. I mean, seeing James Wells Frankenstein on the TV at the rental store takes us all the way back to 19, what, 31, 33, something like that, where a lot of this starts. And I love that, that nod. Bringing in Jamie Lee Curtis, talking about Jamie Lee, you know, I mean, the queen of scream, right? And so just those little things just really make this still, after all these years, still stand out to me. And it led to kind of a renaissance. I mean, horror was kind of on the on the downside before mm-hmm. this movie. And there was suddenly, suddenly you know, there's a, a flourishing. I mean, we didn't list them all. All of the ones that were trying to get on the screen bandwagon. Yeah. <laughs> and I, now they've remade all those. So. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not done yet, apparently. <clears throat> they're not done yet, apparently, yeah. Did you all feel like this was kind of a time machine, though? I, I felt like I was back in 95 or, or 96 or whatever. It, I, I mean, it... <laughs> It brought it all back, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't go I, you young know, again. That's not possible, but. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying, you know, how it captured the era. It really made you feel, mm-hmm. you know, that, that time period, you know, that, that grunge pop, you know, kind of everything melding together and, yeah. you know, the, 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 the greasy hair, the big sweaters, the, you know. I mean, flannel. Billy Loomis was in my closet, dude. I mean. The flannel. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> The, the way he wore the polos over the T-shirts with the, with the, you know, baggy, but not gigantic. He wasn't wearing Stu's jeans. I mean, Billy Loomis was in my closet, dude. <laughs> was... and, I, and I had the Billy Loomis hair, but I washed mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> His hair's gross. That's yeah. almost my pain. <laughs> well... Speaking of pans, you know, I, the the ghost face killer in here wasn't uh, as immune to kitchen uh, appliances and 
pots and pans as other killers that we've had. So let's go and grab some of those pans to try to defend ourselves from Mr. Ghostfaced. That is certainly what same games you would have used to fight back. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll lead off on the pans. And, you know, this really is a thing because this movie is so nostalgic. I mean, you just kind of got to take it for what it is. The script's not perfect. It's fun. But one of the things that I was uh, uh, not a fan of with this rewatch, it seemed like it went a little fast for me. And I seem to remember there being a bigger lead times on the who done it. Who's behind the mask? Is it Billy? Is it Stu? Is it the sheriff? Is it the principal? Is it, uh, you know, Nev Campbell's dad? Is it Randy? Who is behind the mask? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I really lost that suspense, this viewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't quite feel it. Um, you know, as much as the initial viewing, which, you know, like you said, it's become such a trope. It's become such a thing, you know, you, and you dismiss people so quickly now. Oh, it's not him. It's not them. It's not them. It's not them. You know, when back in 96, we're watching it, you know, there's like a scene and a half devoted to everybody. But I remember seeming like it was half of the movie thinking it was a principal back in 96. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Fonz is killing students. I was say, it should have been the Fonz. <laughs> but, we, I mean, we were a lot younger back then, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But, see, I... Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. But I'll, I had a similar experience watching, rewatching The Fifth Element. Uh, not Fifth yeah. Element. Uh, the Sixth Sense. Uh, yeah. Once I knew how that oh. movie ended... Uh, wrong yeah. number movie, sorry. But once I knew how the movie ended, it felt like it went really fast and things were obvious and, you know... Yeah. So I think it's one of those movies that once you know, like, the trick ending... It, it loses some of its, you know, appeal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Once it's laid out, it, it doesn't become as much. Yeah. All right. You know, as far as my pan, this was, was kind of tough because this is where I mentioned that the adult me sees things very differently. Uh, and I started to remember why I quit really enjoying slasher flicks. You know, I still like horror movies every once in a while, but slasher flicks I've kind of gotten away from because what I start seeing is this terroristic threatening of young women specifically. And it pulls me out of these movies every time. Mm. I know it's a trope of the subgenre, but I just don't enjoy. Instead of feeling tension, I was angry. When Drew Barrymore's Casey Becker was crying and just saying, leave me alone. I, I, I wanted to grab a bat on Billy and Stu when they were tormenting Sydney after the big reveal. And I, and I don't know if it's just through adult eyes and, or a teacher's eyes and you're wanting to protect students or, or whatnot. I don't know. But it just pulls me out now. And, and I just have such a difficult time with those types of scenes more so now than I think I've ever had. See, I, I have had a similar experience. I, I haven't seen this movie since I'd had kids. And so like that opening scene with Drew Barrymore plays completely different to, differently to me now. Mm-hmm. And when oh, yeah. the parents show up and they see all, all that's happened, and I'm just, I'm with, I'm with the mom, man. I'm feeling what she's going through. Mm-hmm. And, and later in the house, when it's revealed that her dad's in there the whole time, I'm thinking, he had to listen. 
to all of that happening to his daughter. Yeah. All that was going on there. I'm like, man, because now, now, now I'm not Stu and Billy's age. Now I'm the dad's age. <laughs> right. You know? exactly. So I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> empathizing with different people, but yep. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, my pan is one that I don't know how I didn't see in 1996. These people are old. <laughs> <laughs> they do not look like they're 17. So <laughs> I went and looked at their ages. The youngest one was 23 when they made this movie. <laughs> Billy and Stu were both 26. <laughs> and they look it. <laughs> It's good they didn't do more on the school campus because when they're when they're not at school, you can kind of forget they're supposed to be high school students. Look more like college students, and it, mm-hmm. you don't think about it as hard. If they'd had if they'd had a bunch of scenes where they were sitting in classrooms and desks raising their hands with notebooks, I mean, that would it would it would have stuck out like a sore thumb. But yeah, it was hard to buy, and they would try to act like a couple of scenes where Def Campbell was trying super hard to be an innocent, you know, high school age girl. And I'm just like, you're too old for that. It ain't working. <laughs> And Rose McGowan did it too. And Rose McGowan was trying to be like this, you know, playful, like almost like she was in Clueless kind of thing. And it's like, you're too old for this. It ain't working. And uh, Matthew Lillard had a couple of scenes where he was trying to be, you know, dude bro teenager from high school. And it just, it was too much. I'm like, I get it, man. You look like you're almost 30, though. (laughs) I know you're wearing gigantic jeans. I'm still not convinced you're 17. Yeah, so that 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 was hard to buy. I mean, it was hard to see. Um, and goodness, Jamie Kennedy does not look like he's seventeen. <laughs> it, that that was a that was hard to keep looking at through this movie. If they'd been college students instead of high school students, it'd have been easier to roll with. But yeah, that was tough. That's probably why the sequel that they went that direction, obviously, because then they were thirty trying to play twenty something, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had such a case of mistaken identity with Jamie Kennedy. I would have bet money that that was Seth Green. <laughs> it's the hair. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the hair. The stature. And, yeah. and yeah, and just some some of his mannerisms and that era, you know, it's a, kind of that Romeo and Juliet st- Seth Green. This just, just, just obnoxious bratty, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he's about yeah. five inches too tall for Seth Green. Though. Yeah, he's about, yeah, he's about <laughs> half a foot too tall. See, you go Seth, Seth Green, I go Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So <laughs> he was Oz, the werewolf. <laughs> All right. Y'all want to give us some awards? Let's go for it. Here we go. All right. Base performance. Sammy, what do you got? <laughs> okay. This is going to be really interesting, uh, <laughs> considering what Jamie just said. Um, you know, I've, I've said this about a lot of movies. You know, you've got your lead, and you have to buy that lead for the movie to work. And that's the reason I'm giving Nev Campbell the best performance as Sidney Prescott. If she doesn't work, if you can't connect to her, then this movie fails. Um, You know, she is the primary protagonist. She has to be likable. 
I do think it's hilarious. This is a Wes Craven movie, and now he has another young woman in this situation, like Nancy Thompson from Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, you know, so we have very similar character in Sydney that we had in Nancy. So, but but like I said, Neff Campbell has to work in this. You know, and the and those freckles are just so cute. So I've got to go there. So, <laughs> If she wasn't really 23, that'd be creepy, Sammy. I know. That's why I can say that. That, that I know she's much older now, and I was much younger when I saw this movie first. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going with her boyfriend, uh, Mr. Skeet Ulrich. Um, he plays sketchy so well. I mean, almost too well. Because, um, I mean, you're supposed to like wonder about him, right? Um, like, you know, he's where he's not, he's not where he's supposed to be. He's there too fast. You know, he's, you know, supposed to be kind of weird. He kind of playing that Johnny Depp role from Nightmare. So we've got, we've got Nancy and Johnny Depp here. Um, yep. Uh, yeah, you really do. I think that's why they cast him, actually. He looks a lot like Johnny Depp from back then. Yeah. But uh, I just, but when it's time to fully unpack things at the end, that kitchen scene. Um, I mean, Matthew Lillard is like, has found like the top and is like, you know, flying over it with a jetpack. But I mean, but Skeet Ulrich, I mean, I, I, he, he's menacing there. And you believe there's more going on with him. Like, you know, Matthew Willard's just crazy. Stu's nuts. But, like, this guy's nuts, too, but in a more menacing, calculating, um, revengeful kind of way. And so I just I just, I just, really buy his performance all the way through. No, Dev Campbell's good. I wasn't bad. I mean, I was. there's a couple of scenes where all of them are like, we get it. You're trying to be teenagers, and you're not. Right. But, but uh, Skeet Ulrich, I just, I buy all the way through. And I'm, I'm, and I honestly, I'm still surprised he didn't have more of a career. Yeah, <clears throat> I think they were really trying to push, you know, him into the stardom. I don't know what what happened there. I'm going a little bit of a different uh, direction than you guys did. I'm not going with the, uh, one of the main guys. You know, everybody in this movie seems to be overacting. Everybody seems to be overacting, from you know Nev Campbell to, to especially Matthew Lillard. Um, <laughs> Even even the principal Henry Winkler, um, but m- my my favorite performance is really a subtle performance from a character who who always has kind of these awkward, even sometimes creepy roles. But I think in this movie he has a more awkward, earnest role, and that's David Arquette, uh, Deputy Dewey. He really was just in a movie where everybody was so over the top. He was he was really kind of subtle. Uh, just kind of out of place, uh, you know, being kind of sweet on Courtney Cox. I I just really felt felt for him in this movie uh, above everybody else, you know, just being so over the top. Some of those scenes were so awkward. I was cringing and trying not to look at him. I felt bad for him. <laughs> I know, you know but he was but he, you know, he, you know, but he could have, and you know, other things I've seen him in, he he really has overacted and went over the top. But in this one, he just kind of is is subtly awkward, and you know he's he's not as flamboyant and in your face as some of these other guys. Well, that, that scene that scene in the police station where his sister's cutting him down. I mean, yeah. that was <laughs> I felt so bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I felt so bad for him, you know. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed you know his his performance. Uh, he's. I don't. I don't know if he's underrated or just doesn't have the chops. But you know, he he really done well. I think in that role. I get the impression he might be a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. I don't. I don't think there's an impression 
Uh, yeah. Very much so, yeah. I mean, would you want to hang out with him for three months on a film set? I'm not sure I would either. <laughs> well, Courtney Cox chose out the chose to hang out with him a little bit longer. So I get the impression she might be a weirdo too. She's, yeah, she's quite weird herself. <laughs> anyway, our next uh, our next award is best scene. And I've already been referenced to it. It's the kitchen reveal scene where they're unpacking the plan. Um, and and I know Matthew Lillard's over the top, but I love the way he plays Stu. I mean, it's just... You know, some, you know, there's some actors that you know probably aren't really that great of actors um, and that maybe they're over the top. But, like, you just enjoy them. Like, Matthew Lillard is that guy for me. Like, I love the movie he made, like, you know, recently, like, not recently now, Without a Paddle. Y'all ever see that? Mm-hmm. Um, I just something about Matthew Lillard. I just find charming. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the the over the top just, but he's just he's at he found eleven, and like found another level beyond that. I mean, he is just. <laughs> I mean, nobody's going for it harder than Matthew Lillard in that kitchen scene when he's trying to get when he's still trying to get stabbed. Is he Stu to stab? Him? I mean, trying to get Billy to stab him. I mean, he's just. I mean, he's like. Red Bull and meth or something. I mean, it's just crazy manic energy, and Billy's creepy, and 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 Neff Campbell. She plays it really well. She's clearly frightened. She's scared, mm-hmm. but there's a strength about her too. And I just and the script is strong there. The way they, you know, Billy starts off playing like, you know, we don't need a motive. That's that's passe. That's old school. And then he says, but maybe. I just, I love the way that twists and plays. I just mm-hmm. I love the kitchen reveal. Yeah, that's a that's a really great scene, and I'm going to jump on a rabbit trail here before I go with the, my award. If you ever wonder about Matthew Lillard's acting, I was in a doctor's office one time waiting on an appointment for way too long, and it was one of these I don't know if it was Law and Order or or NCIS or one of those things that Matthew Lillard played in one of those episodes with Carol Burnett. He was. <laughs> He was sort of her weird, maybe not quite on the level kind of minder keeper assistant person. And he was intense in that role. Huh. Uh, so you look look up that episode among the uh, hundreds of thousands of episodes of Law and Order CIS. <laughs> you know, just 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 try to find one with Matthew Lord in it and Carol Burnett, and it it, it blew my mind. That it was even him. Um, how, yeah, he huh. he kind of done some physical changes. It was really neat. But uh, as far as the scene in Scream, the movie we're reviewing, uh, I'm going to go with the opening scene because it lays out the rules. <clears throat> Has a great actress. Been in love with Drew Barrymore since E.T. I mean, she's 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 my Drew. She's my Drew Barrymore, uh, and. She, the the playfulness on the phone, you know, that's that also sets forth this era we're talking about. You know, we don't have cell phones. We didn't have caller ID. When the phone rang, you answered it you know, like a normal human being, you know, without necessarily knowing what was on the other end of the line. Uh, you know, weirdo or telemarketer or or grandma. You know, you never knew. Uh, it's, it was a gamble. But uh, yeah, the opening scene just lays out what this movie is perfectly. It establishes the menace of this character. It gives you some gruesomeness without really going too over the top. And, you know, you get the emotional gut punch of the parents, you know, coming in and seeing this and the impact at the school. So that, that opening scene is, is going to be my pick. 
Uh, I'm going to piggyback on that just for a second. The fact that, I mean, the, from the movie posters to the, to the, the trailers, all had Drew Barrymore front and center. Front and center. Mm-hmm. So and she's yeah. like a minute. And with, so when she dies at the end of that, I mean, all bets are off. All bets are off. Yeah. 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 It was brilliant. Well, also, was... and also, I mean, like nowadays, I mean, she's not a huge star in the same way she was in the 90s. It wasn't. Yeah. So I, 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 I think that scene doesn't work the same way as it did in the 96s. Right. right you know, she she was well, I was just gonna say she was, you know, a, a movie darling at that time. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, she had come into her own as an actress and, and you were seeing her in lots of different things during that period of time. Um, I think for for my best scene though, I had to go to one that was a little maybe sillier. Um, but I once again I just I love the little bit of of tropey funny in it when principal Hembry um tries to catch whoever's knocking on his door in his office and he keeps looking keeps looking jumps out and then he startles the janitor who refers to as fred who is dressed in a very famous piece of clothing uh who is also created by west craven and that was west craven in the makeup as the janitor so <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes, so that, yeah, that was, was Wes him. Craven in the Fred the janitor makeup <laughs> and sweater. So I just I love the just the little nod, the little kind of humor punch to it. Uh that and to see the, the Fawns, you know, just do his thing. I mean, hey. <laughs> I enjoyed watching the Fawns intimidate those kids with the scissors. I mean that was <laughs> that was brilliant. Yeah. yeah, the Fonz is not only cool, but he can be scary too. That's right. And I love when he opened his uh, wardrobe and there was a leather jacket hanging in there. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Just just a little throwback to the Fonz. Henry Henry uh, Henry Wrinkler is great, uh, but uh, you know he is such a great character. Which brings us to our next award: favorite character. There are so many characters in this movie. You have Ghostface. You've got Billy Stu, Nev Campbell's uh, Sydney, uh, Dewey's Sheriff, Courtney Cox's reporter. But there's one character who kind of is keeping score. He's kind of taking names and notes almost. Randy. Jamie Kennedy. Uh, I'm going to go with him as my favorite character. He was so fun in the video store, just being the obnoxious nerd. <laughs> Don't you know? You know? And he's just carrying on. And, and you know, his, his whole uh, rules dialogue, um, his, you know, he, he could have almost been the mastermind. And you kind of get the feeling that, that Billy and Stu took all of their psychopathic notes from him <laughs> and then put them in action. <laughs> He he gave them the rules. Apparently, I mean, he could have almost been the mastermind behind this whole uh, you know situation that we have in this movie. But yeah, I I, I love that performance. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say, Mike's already telegraphed it. I I love Stu in this movie. Fifteen <laughs> year old Jamie thought he was the coolest dude on the planet. <laughs> I may have had Billy Loomis's wardrobe, but I wanted to be Stu. Um, He's just so over the top, and he's got that weird sort of manic charisma. I just, I, I love Stu in this movie, and he's just, there's no re- rhyme or reason to anything he's doing. He's just this creature of malevolent manic energy. I just, I just, I'm, fa- I just, I'm so entertained by Stu in this movie. 
And then to transition him into a beloved childhood cartoon character. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect, right? (laughs) Makes perfect sense. No, no. um, I agree with with both of you that that so many of these characters were just over the top. And so I'm going to kind of take... Dwayne's best performance and bring it to my best character. Um, I liked Dewey Riley. You know, he was the most down to earth person in this whole movie. <laughs> um, I felt for him because he was never taken seriously, but it did add that bit of humor. Uh, you mentioned the part in the in the 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 uh, precinct there. <laughs> you know, he's like, "When I wear this badge, well, Mom says you got to treat me like a man of the law." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you know, David Arquette just plays this character. He's so sincere and naive. Um, I just, I like him. You just connect with him. So, <laughs> upper body mass makes people take me more seriously. They've <laughs> <laughs> been working out. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I connect with him because I have about that much game. And always, <laughs> yeah, I, I love I love that he was he was in such a great position to move on Courtney Cox, and she was opening the door. And he's like, "I'm on duty, ma'am." <laughs> <laughs> it's like really. <laughs> oh gosh! Oh mercy! Sammy. Okay, our next uh, award is best quote. And uh, Sammy, I think you've got a lot of options in this one. Yeah, this movie has a lot of those moments that there's so many pieces of dialogue. Um, I went with a weird one, though, just because I know some of the ones are just, you know, they're they're, they're overused to the point. And I I wanted it for a particular reason. And I'm going to give it to Rose McGowan's Tatum when she says, don't go there, Sid. You're starting to sound like some Wes Carpenter flick. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just love the idea. And as I was researching this, Wes Craven was talking about how him and John Carpenter are so often confused with moviegoers. And so to have Wes Carpenter thrown <laughs> together and mashed up, that just, it cracked me up. And I liked that line. So. <laughs> All right. Um, maybe I went with one of the obvious ones. I'm not sure, but it's when um, they're in the kitchen and Sydney says they've been watching too many horror movies, <laughs> and, and Billy gets so indignant. Now, Sid, don't you blame the movies? Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, some wisdom in there, I believe, is truth, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going with the. Go ahead, Jamie. But I, I got to kick out how defensive he was for the movies. I mean. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with the absolute obvious uh, best quote. Uh, Jamie Kennedy's uh, dialogue concerning the rules. He gets up, pauses the movie, and he proceeds to uh, lecture everyone on the rules of uh, horror movies. And... Uh, the responses as he's, you know, D- do this, don't do that. They're throwing popcorn or throwing beer bottles at him, you know, and he's having just a blast. And, you know, and he's acknowledging all the things that we've 
turned a blind eye to in the past that we've pretended not to know. He's acknowledging and bringing to lot, and you know that's that's just so so much fun with the rules. Uh, well, our first episode specific award is best false lead, um, and I'm going to go with Sammy's best character. All the little signs that maybe Dewey was behind all of it, mm-hmm. um, and if it had been him at the end, I wouldn't have been completely stunned. Um, cause you could really see all of that, you know, belittling and emasculation could really build up a lot of range, rage in a person. <laughs> and, yeah. and I could see him taking out on his sister and all their friends. Maybe that's why he goes for the sister first, you know, and Dewey is conveniently like not where things are happening a lot of the time, or he shows up just after they're done. Like the, like, like when they call, when the city gets the call at, you know, their house mm-hmm. and Dewey, comes storm out of the room with his gun like as soon as the phone calls over it's like he could have hung up his cell phone and ran out of the room really- i mean it's just out. yeah there's a, there's a lot of little little drips and drabs where mm-hmm. it could have been dewey i'm like that would have been an interesting end if it had been dewey mm. yeah well i think it would have been more interesting if it would have been the principal <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, he had such rage uh, when he's you know, threatening the students. Uh, he's Henry Winkler is just a phenomenal actor, beloved by many as the Fawns. And that that turn uh, would have been great. I would have loved it so much. But uh, and that was one of the ones that I seem to remember it being like almost half the movie back in '96. But it was really just a couple a couple little scenes, and then he's taken out. Uh, but yeah, I, I liked that the thought that it could have possibly been the Fonz. And, and you know, if, if they would have done a classic Scooby Doo unmasking, and they pulled off, he could have been All right, um, best false lead for me. I, I went a little bit different on this because you know there were so many false leads in this. You know, and they were peppered through from the erratic principal, obviously, to to the didn't go anywhere. Sheriff Burke's boots. Um, it really just kept you kind of guessing. But I think the best one for me was the introduction of the accused murder of Sydney's mother, Cotton Weary. Obviously, the big break for Liv Schreiber. So that's my best lead. <laughs> You're not wrong. (laughs) Well, this movie has some glorious death scenes. Our last award is the best death scene. I'm going to go to the garage door of doom. (laughs) As our Tatum, Rose McGowan, trying to escape the killer after... uh, Bludgeoning him with beers, uh, chasing him around the garage. It looked like it was about an eight by eight room. Uh, and then she finally tries to crawl through the garage door only to have him conveniently by the switch and raise it just to try to angle to break her neck. Yeah, that, that was so much fun. That was so funny. It's also the right to... answer. Exactly. <laughs> Hands down. Hands down. The best death scene. 
I got a kick out of Stu doing like the trope, like waking up for one last scare. I got a kick out of that in Sydney shooting him right away, but it's not yeah. even close. No. <laughs> Rose McGowan's death is the right answer. And you know, when you think about it, her death is the only death in the movie that wasn't by stabbing. Everybody oh. else was stabbed and or or stabbed or cut repeatedly, except her. And then, of course, she's also the character that names the villain. She is. That's the only time he's referred to as Ghostface. It is by her in that, that scene. In that you know, so, you know, and she wanted to yeah, just when be she's the teasing sequel. him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When she's teasing him, they're on the stairs. Yeah. yeah that's, please don't uh, kill me, Mister Ghostface. I, I want to be in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, I'm I, glad I wanted something. Yeah, oh yeah, that, I, I did get a kick out of Stu taking thirty minutes to die, though. <laughs> you hit me with the phone, man. Yeah, feeling woozy got, here. He's got like four stab wounds, and he's complaining <laughs> about being hit with the phone. <laughs> well, you know, uh, a character who is never, never one that we loathe to see on screen. Never one that we hope would be killed early on in a movie. He seems to be immortal in our pantheon of podcast. Keanu Reeves makes a scream with joy, Jamie. How does he connect to the movie Scream? Uh, I wasn't screaming for joy on this one. This was a close call, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this was the most recent movie that's been this hard. Um, I almost went with Drew Barrymore as hosted SNL, and so is Keanu. I was, <laughs> I was that close to that being the Keanu connection. But I did find one eventually. So the Keanu connection this week is a man who served as the special effects foreman on screen. I don't know what that means in the slide. Special effects foreman. Yeah, I think maybe he got to yell at the people who actually did the special effects. I don't know. <laughs> But this dude's career has really taken off. After Scream, there are a bunch of spoofs. I think he worked on all the scary movie movies. Uh, there's dozens of B-movies. He's on like six Sandler flicks, so many TV shows, all of the NCISs, all of the CSIs, all the acronym shows. He's on all those. Until 2017. And he works on a little flop that we love called Baby Driver. And it feels like that was a turning point for his career because after that, he goes on to work on Aquaman, the beautiful Legion show on TV, uh, Ford v. Ferrari, Mulan, and Westworld, all acclaimed for their special effects. But in the midst of that great run, that late career revival, Mark R. Byers worked on John Wick 3. And that is our Keanu connection. <gasps> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you don't even know how hard that was. <laughs> that is insane. I looked at every single person who was whose face was in this movie. I was to the point I was hoping it was Kenny the cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> or it could have been Linda Blair, one of the newscasters. Dude, I, no, no one who had a millisecond of straight time in this movie has ever worked with Keanu. Oh gosh. <laughs> I looked at people who didn't have a face on IMDb. This had that blank square. Oh, <laughs> it was bad. And so for our next episode, we're going to be doing the news. Right, Sammy? All right. Hold on. News? 
Uh, I thought the news was once again the same headline we've had. Everything is rescheduled. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, since since we've got another bummer of a week, what are we doing, Dwayne? Well, as you have heard by that last, have a guest. And uh, we're going to roll the dice. So we have a guest roller. Alton here is going to roll our 20-sided die. I have the list. No. Okay, Alton. <laughs> it's I'll never smell some of those. Eighteen, okay, Daddy. I rolled what I was supposed to roll. Alton, you weren't supposed to tell me about that. Number nineteen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number nineteen is the Iron Giant. All right. So yes. You, you may get it. Thank you, sir. Your money's on the table. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that is a definite winner of a movie. The Iron Giant, a classic modern animation. I'm pumped. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this, fellas. <laughs> We're going to do this more often. <laughs> Can I bribe Alton, too? <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, as we prepare to watch this classic, beloved animated movie where a robot thinks he's Superman, Jamie, what are we going to do? We're going to pull our bits back together at the end and keep it nerdy. <laughs>